So before we get into sermon stuff too, um, just to acknowledge, I'm new. I'm, I'm Matt. I'm one of the new guys. I've met some of you. I have not met all of you. I look forward to getting to meet all of you in the coming weeks and months. And um, I've got some blocks on my schedule, so if you want to, you know, get a meal or a coffee, you can go on the website, just like you can book set. There's someone else. You can grab some time with me. So love to get to know y'all as uh, getting settled and kind of used to life here in Greenville and uh, at Village. But Liz, Annie, and I are thrilled to be here and um, thus far loving Greenville and our new home among you. With that being said, let's pray and let's get into the Word. So I ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, that it would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you're uh, paying attention, you notice that there's a little bit of a change going on up front. Like, the color changed magically. We've been in green up here forever. We're in white. And that's because today is Christ the King Sunday. And Christ the King Sunday is kind of, it's like, it's the last Sunday of our liturgical year. It's really kind of like a New Year's Eve of the church year of sorts. So like, happy church New Year's Eve, whatever that means. So we turn over to a new year next week when Advent begins. And every year as we kind of go through the church year, we start in Advent next Sunday, actually. We kind of begin this year-long walkthrough of the life of Jesus, but also kind of the bigger story of the Scriptures. And I can't say Advent without plugging. Uh, check out the Advent email. There's a great resource page on the website. Go look at it. So Advent, which we're going to head into next week, is all about awaiting Jesus' coming both kind of his first and second coming. And we celebrate Jesus' coming at Christmas, and then after that we have Epiphany, which is about Christ being the Savior, not just of the Jewish people, but of the world. That what God is doing is not just for Israel, but for all people. Then in Lent, we kind of head into the desert with Jesus to fast and to pray. In Holy Week, we live Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. At Pentecost, we remember the Holy Spirit came, and then we kind of spend ordinary time remembering the growth of God's kingdom throughout the world. So this kind of whole big thing culminates today on Christ the King Sunday. And we end kind of every liturgical trip around the sun by remembering the end of the biblical story in the scriptures, which is that Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one, that he is the king of all creation. And that truth is really the final note in the symphony of the scriptures. So as you probably picked up on this morning, all of the readings focus on Jesus being king. So in Ezekiel 34, we find God condemning the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, because they haven't cared for his people. And God really asserts that he is the true shepherd of his people that it's his responsibility to care for them and to give them pasture, and that ultimately God will judge his people, but he will judge them with fairness and with equity. He'll separate between rams and sheep and goats. And this idea of God as shepherd actually has echoes of another Old Testament theme, that God isn't just the shepherd of Israel, but he is Israel's right and true king. So if you remember in 1 Samuel, Israel hasn't had a king yet, and they come to Samuel, and they're basically like, we want to be like all the other nations. Please give us a king. We want a king who can sit in judgment over us and settle our disputes. We want a king who can protect us from threats. And 
it's not really a great idea. Samuel tries to talk them out of it because the true judge of Israel and the true protector of Israel isn't a human king. It's God himself. So when they want a human king, when Israel asks for a human king, they're at best asking for like a placeholder for who God really should be for them. And at worst, it's really a rejection of God. And yet, despite this rejection and many other rejections throughout the Old Testament and the failure of shepherds and kings of Israel over and over and over again, Israel's true shepherd and king, God, remains faithful, though Israel is not. So then in Psalm 95, we proclaim together the truth that the Lord is a great God and a king above all gods, meaning that God's above all spiritual beings and everything, and that everything in creation from the depths of the earth to the heights of the mountains belong to him, and the sea and everything that's in it belongs to him because he made all of it. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, we read of the last things, so the things when Jesus returns to raise the dead and to hand over his kingdom to his Father, having defeated every rule and authority and power and even defeating our greatest enemy, death itself. So really, in short, the theme of this Sunday is that no matter what we see going on in our lives or what we see going on in the world around us, Jesus is the king, and Jesus has the final word over all of it, everything. And this truth about who Jesus is is the defining reality for those who believe in Jesus and follow him. That the future of the world, that our future, that the future of everything in all creation, it doesn't depend on who wins the next election. It doesn't depend on who happens to win the next war. It doesn't even depend on our ability to fix all the problems and injustices we see in the world around us. But it depends solely on the Lord Jesus, the one who has the authority and the power to defeat everything, everything that stands against him, which also stands against us. And that Jesus rules over, as we read about in Hebrews 12, an unshakable kingdom, an unshakable kingdom that can never be defeated. I don't know about you, but as I was kind of sitting there thinking through the passages and as I'm preaching this this morning, all this kind of has me, you know, as the kids these days say, feeling hyped. I kind of feel like I did watching the Florida State football game last night. Go Knowles, I'm one of them. <laughs> but to think, think about it for a minute, right? Life is crazy and unpredictable and uncertain. One of my favorite prayers in the prayer book talks about the changes and chances of this life. And the truth of today is that among the changes and chances of this life, there's something that we can actually be confident in, which is the steadfast care and rule of Jesus. And, you know, speaking as someone who's recently uprooted their life somewhere and moved all their stuff and started a new job and then whole family spent a week being sick and uh, whose life has felt a little bit all over the place lately, this is really good news to me personally. It's really kind of just what the doctor ordered. And on any given week, you stand up here as the preacher. I can't read your mind. I don't know what's going on in your life. But especially now, because I'm new and I really don't know you, I really don't know what's going on in your life. And I don't know your circumstances. 
But I'd hazard a guess, and I'd bet some real money on it, that there's something, there's something going on in your life, in your world, in your family, some need that you have that this truth speaks directly to as well today. And, you know, as the new guy here at Village, kind of what comes with the deal being new is like, and this being my first sermon, there's a little bit of an evaluation process that's going on here, right? You're like, who's this new guy? What's his deal? You don't know me. And I'm kind of like, who are these people? I don't really know all of you that well. We're kind of like figuring each other out. And that's just like, that's just naming the truth. That's part of this. It's how it goes. And man, when you come up to preach your first sermon at a church, you know, you don't get to do that many times in your kind of career in ministry. It'd be so great if I could just like end this sermon right now, you know, <laughs> like new church, new preacher, uh, you know, happy message. The only kind of negative thing is like the awful stuff the world throws at us, but I'm not saying anything that's kind of like stepping on toes, right? It's like, this is great. And you know what? Nice, short, sweet sermon. We can get out of here a little bit early. Uh, sounds great. Ideal first sermon. Count it as a win. The only problem is that uh, we have this pesky little parable here from Jesus in Matthew 25. This parable that speaks of Jesus' return and of judgment, of sheep being separated out from goats with one group going into eternal life and the other into eternal punishment. Actually, the place prepared for the devil and his angels. So the priest and theologian Robert Capon once wrote that this parable that we heard this morning is in one way the heaviest and most fear-inspiring parable of all. And I think I agree with him. He also said that no one who has ever heard this parable even once ever forgets it. I can remember, I can't remember exactly when I first heard it, but I remember this parable being somewhere like burned deep into my brain. Because if we're being serious and honest, it's terrifying. So in the parable, right, Jesus returns at the end of all things, and he's sitting on his throne in judgment, and he separates all the people gathered before him into two groups, the sheep and the goats. The sheep to his right, the goats to his left. And the sheep he invites to enter into eternal life, telling them it's because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous sheep, though, they're confused. Well, they never saw Jesus in any of the kind of need that Jesus just talked about, meaning that they hadn't really provided for any of Jesus' needs, that he just said that they did. So they ask him, Lord, what, when do we do this for you? And when Jesus replies, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it, to me. And the script simply kind of flips over when it comes to the unrighteous goats. So they're sent into eternal punishment because they neglected to care for the least of these, and therefore they neglected to care for Jesus himself. And the most shocking and scary part of this parable lies in the fact that the goats, the unrighteous ones, they seem to be sent away from Jesus and into eternal punishment merely on the basis of of their moral performance, or lack thereof, simply because they didn't do the right things. They didn't welcome the stranger, or clothe the naked, or feed the hungry, or visit the prisoner, and therefore neglected to do the same to Jesus himself. 
And what makes it maybe even more scary than that is that they're totally oblivious to the fact that that kind of behavior was prerequisite in order for them to make it into the kingdom. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? When do we not do this stuff? I mean, how can these people be expected to play the game if they don't know the rules? That doesn't seem fair to me. It offends my sense of what's fair and what's right and wrong. So is this it? Is this parable in Matthew 25 simply a parable about our philanthropic performance and how it relates to salvation? So, I mean, yeah, all this, you know, message about Jesus being the king and the kingdom, it's great. But is Jesus saying that in the end, our participation and place in his kingdom is riding solely on our service to the least and the last and the lost? And if that's the case, then is this really good news at all? Is the message on this Christ the King Sunday something like, you know, hey, Jesus is king, and now y'all get busy and get your acts together, or else? Is that it? Well, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying in this parable. And I think we can find some clues as to why it is he's not saying that if we take a closer look at the passage itself. So the first clue we find in verse 34. You can look there if you want. And there Jesus, he says to the sheep, the righteous ones, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Pay attention to the language Jesus uses. You know, he doesn't say, you know, hey, y'all, come get what you've earned. Hey, y'all, come get the wages you've deserved for the work you've done. He says, come and inherit the kingdom. Of course, in a fallen world filled with fallen people and fallen families, it doesn't always work out this way. But kind of in the ideal world, if you think about an inheritance, it's something that you're just given. It's something you don't earn. An inheritance is something you're given simply because you belong to the family. An inheritance is kind of part of the deal that you get by being in the family. And it's a whole different framework than we see even Jesus using in other places to talk about work and wages in different parables and even in the other writings of Scripture. So there's one clue. And the second clue is this, that the sheep, the righteous ones, kind of just like the goats, they have absolutely no idea what it is that they've done to actually deserve the place in the kingdom that Jesus is giving to them. So when Jesus tells them that they welcomed him and they clothed him and they fed him and they visited him, their response is, huh? What? Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger or sick or in prison? They have absolutely zero idea that what they've done to the least in the world was actually service to Jesus. Just like the unrighteous have zero idea that their neglect of the least in this world was a rejection of Jesus himself. And so, when I read parables, you know, anytime we kind of read scripture and we find these little details, things like this, they amount to really what is kind of like a big flashing sign to pay attention and to ask some questions. They're telling us that something more is going on here than what maybe at first meets the eye when we read this parable. So, yes, it's clear that the righteous have done things in their life that brought honor to Jesus, that served Jesus. 
But the question behind it is, why did they do it? Why did they do it? So given the fact that they didn't know that, you know, the kind of works that they did were the prerequisites for entry into eternal life, I think we can probably go ahead and safely rule out the whole, you know, they were just doing these things to get into heaven answer to that question. Because, you know, how could they be doing things they didn't know they were supposed to do? And Scripture bears witness to the truth that this kingdom that the righteous enter into, this kingdom of Jesus, that it's not just eternal life or something far off that we hear about in Matthew 25, but actually that it's something far closer to us that's actually in the here and in the now. And the kingdom of God in the story of Scripture, it really is kind of inaugurated when Jesus left his throne in heaven and came to earth. That's when the king came to begin to claim what was his own. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth in his ministry in Mark's gospel are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here, now. Then he says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus bringing the kingdom with him is, in a sense, the good news of the gospel. And so Jesus brings this kingdom of God to earth with him. The kingdom being the place where God's reign is made perfect over all things. And you see the signs of this in Jesus' ministry, that the demons and all the spiritual forces of evil, they listen to Jesus, they know who he is, they obey him, that Jesus heals people who have tried for years and years to be healed. He brings all the signs, right, that God's reign is being established, that evil and sin are being driven out of the world. And this kind of idea of the kingdom being where God's rule is perfected is in the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus comes to merge the two, heaven being just simply the place where God's will is done perfectly. And the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates is different than the kingdoms of this world. So in Jesus' kingdom, the last are actually those who are first, and the first find themselves at the end of the line. The poor are the ones who get invited to sit at the places of honor at the banquet. A prodigal who squandered away all of his money is welcomed home, not just as a servant, but as a son and is celebrated with a feast. Jesus' kingdom takes the world as we know it and flips it upside down. In Acts 17, this is actually what the apostles get accused of. It's like, these guys who have turned the whole world upside down have come here and now they're causing trouble. Or... The bishop and scholar Tom Wright likes to actually put it, Jesus turns the world right side up. That Jesus takes the world and flips it on its head and allows us to see things as they actually are. To get a sense of the kingdom, though, maybe the best place to look is really what is almost the constitution of the kingdom, which is in Matthew 5, and it's the Beatitudes. And there we read that Jesus' kingdom belongs to those who are discarded and overlooked by the world. The poor in spirit those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are reviled and persecuted for Jesus' sake. Those are the people to whom Jesus' kingdom belongs. Not the powerful, not the rich, but these. This kingdom exists among the least, the last, and the lost. The least of these, my brothers and sisters, as Jesus says in Matthew 25. And the reason Jesus' kingdom looks this way 
is because it takes after its king. Jesus, the one who came not to be served, though he had every right to be, but to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the one who defeated his enemies, not by calling down legions of angel armies to defeat the powers that were, but instead by letting the kingdoms of this world put him to death. Jesus' kingdom looks this way because Jesus' throne is every bit as much a manger and a stable and a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem as it is the glorious heavenly throne we read of in Matthew 25. They're all true at the same time. And because of this, we're invited into this kingdom because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what we bring, the works that we do, our own intrinsic worthiness. No, the qualifications for entry into the kingdom are simply believing and trusting in the shed blood of Jesus, being good enough for us. This kingdom is a gift to be received. As Jesus himself says in Luke's gospel, fear not, little flock. It's the Father's pleasure, the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's a gift. And this brings us back to our parable in Matthew 25. So Robert Capon, who I mentioned earlier, he doesn't just call this the heaviest and most fear-inspiring parable of all, but he also says that it's also the lightest, the last laugh of the mighty act of salvation. And he says that because in it, the bestowal of the inheritance of the kingdom happens on a bunch of sheep who didn't know that they were doing good works for God and who also didn't even know they were being faithful to him. It's at the same time terrifying and light, which pretty much sounds like following Jesus, right? The lightness of the parables found in the fact that the sheep were simply living lives of trust and belief in Jesus in the kingdom that he'd already brought them into. They weren't walking into something they, they weren't already living in before. And they didn't need the checklist of, you know, good works to do that they didn't have. But they saw in the least of the world the face of their king, Jesus, who they knew had become poor himself for their own sake. They didn't even think that the works themselves were going to earn them anything before God because they knew that God delighted to give them this kingdom as a gift. They simply accepted Jesus' invitation. And in accepting that invitation, they began to see the world around them as it really is. Not as the world seems, but as it really is. They entered into the kingdom and found the absurdity of Jesus' grace, and they found that it changed their hearts, not only to see the world and those around them in a different way, but to be in the world in a different way. So, yes, on this Christ the King Sunday, we should take heart in this truth that Jesus is the King and that he holds all things, all things, all our fears, all our worries, all our successes, all of our failures, all of it. Jesus holds all those things in his nail-scarred hands at this moment, at the right hand of the Father. And yes, we should rest today in the fact that Jesus' kingdom is unshakable and that his victory and therefore our victory through him is 100% certain. It's not in doubt. But maybe, too, this morning, we should take a moment to hear Jesus inviting us into deeper lives of trust and belief in him, inviting him further into this kingdom 
that he rules over, inviting us to simply be sheep who receive his grace and find that his grace doesn't just make us, but has the power to make all things new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we exalt you this morning because you are king over all things, over all the things in this world and in our lives that cause us worry or anxiety, cause us to be afraid, that cause us to feel like we don't trust you. Lord, we acknowledge you hold them all. And Lord, this morning we pray that you would not only give us grace to know this truth, but also, Lord, to receive the gift that you've given us of yourself and of your kingdom. That, Lord, you would make in us pure and clean hearts of sheep who see the world as you do and whose lives together reflect that love to a world, Lord, that you are redeeming day by day. And we pray all these things in your most holy name, Jesus. Amen.